We must constantly look at things in a different way. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast was created by two physical therapists out of the desire to learn more about the different educational roles in physical therapy and healthcare and how healthcare education works by talking with educational leaders and people with different perspectives within physical therapy and across interdisciplinary lines on how education can be improved to disrupt the status quo of healthcare education. This is our journey and thanks for listening. Are you a third-year physical therapy student that excels on tests when you have study guides, checklists, and deadlines? With all of the information available about how to prepare for the NPTE, it's easy to get disorganized and not feel prepared going into the big day. NPTE Prep Success is an online course that provides PT students easy-to-use study guides and step-by-step guidance through the NPTE preparation. To learn more, visit kylericeprep.com. Thank you again all for your continued support, and now for the show. Hey, everybody, and thanks for listening to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. This is Brandon speaking. And before we get to today's episode with Drs. Joe Donnelly and Karen McDonald, I wanted to take a moment to share the behind the scenes regarding our coverage of the PT Residency Fellowship issue. At the HET Podcast, we are committed to providing you with diverse perspectives on topics and issues that you care about. We want to inform you about the logistics we encountered when we recorded these series of interviews. You may have noticed that we have had a lack of episodes discussing Aptree's perspective on the change in regulations and fellowships and residencies. Most of our interviews have covered the program's perspective on this issue. I'm going to tell you why. First... We highly recommend that you read all of the available information on both perspectives and consider this issue from all angles. Now, we have provided some resources in our show notes for consideration, so please check those out as well. As for logistics, APTA policy requires all media, including our podcast, to coordinate interviews with board members or representatives of Aptree through the APTA public relations team. Now, over the last few months, we have been collaborating with APTA to feature an Abtree board of director on this very important topic for a podcast episode. We have a date to touch base for scheduling an interview with them in April. Hopefully, we will be able to share their viewpoint through our podcast around that date. I hope this sheds some light on our perspective and content. Now, without further ado, here's our interview with Joe and Cameron. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Pollan, and I'm joined, of course, by my fellow co-host, Stephanie Wyrock. And today we wanted to bring on two special guests to talk about some of the issues and developments that have been going on with physical therapy, residency, and fellowship programs. As today, I'm very pleased to welcome Drs. Cameron McDonald and Dr. and Dr. Joe Donnelly. Now, for those of you who aren't aware, Cameron McDonald is an assistant professor of PT at Regis University. He is the chair of the post-professional committee and the director of the Regis Fellowship in Orthopedic Manual Therapy and Residency in Orthopedic Physical Therapy Programs, along with being the current president of the Colorado chapter of the American Physical Therapy Association. And Joe Donnelly is a clinical professor and director of post-professional education in the Department of Physical Therapy at Mercer University and is the immediate past president of the Georgia Physical Therapy Association. Well, gentlemen, thank you both so much for your time, your service. I know you both have done a lot through the profession and been involved with a lot of things. So first and foremost, 
thank you all for what you've done. Um, you know, for our listeners out there who perhaps haven't heard of you or don't know a bit about you, would you mind just giving us a little bit of a brief intro into who you are and how you each ended up uh, being involved with PT post-professional education to where you both are now? First, Brandon, Stephanie, thank you very much for hosting Joe and I on this very important topic. I came in with the development of the Regis University Fellowship as the inaugural fellow in training with Tim Flynn, with Josh Cleland coming in, with many other individuals. And being involved in that over a decade ago led to me instructing in that realm and then eventually over a, a long journey, uh, becoming the director of the program. And through that, and through my relationships with Aeont, uh, becoming heavily involved with regards to representing the programs and their voice with regard to fellowship training in the orthopedic manual physical therapy realm. Uh, beyond that, um, being a state, be, being a chapter president and being active in the House of Delegates, working with, working with Joe, we've been fronted with the issue of accreditation, uh, for fellowships and residencies in many different ways. And it's an issue that we probably haven't chased down intentionally, but it keeps following us. It affects our membership. It affects the students we work with. It affects our profession. So that's why we're here today. Joe, I think yep. you've got a new coming up as well too. <laughs> yeah, I think. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I'm about to start a new uh, leadership position as the president-elect of the Academy of Orthopedic Physical Therapy. Uh, after CSM. So my interest in uh, residency and fellowship education really started years ago when I was chasing my own mentorship through University of South Australia with Mark Jones and uh, Mary McGarity and that group. Um, went to Czech Republic, studied with Carl Levitt, Vladimir Yanda, um, have trained under Stanley Paris, Dave Simons. Uh, and so my goal was to make sure I could bring this under one roof that would make it much more affordable and easier for newer professionals to gain this uh, advanced knowledge, skills, and education. And so in 2009, uh, I came to Mercer University and along with uh, Dr. Leslie Taylor, we started Mercer University's DPT program. And the interesting thing was uh, residency training had been such a dream for me. We actually started the residency program in orthopedics prior to the entry level program. And so, and the, and the, um, the purpose of that was to build our depth of, of qualified faculty to help us start the program. And so that's, and then that grew to a neurologic uh, residency program, uh, cardiovascular pulmonary residency program, and then the birth of our fellowship in orthopedic manual physical therapy program. You've definitely done a lot, both of you, in trying to get some of these residencies and fellowship programs off the ground. And I'm curious for you to talk about you know, what you had to do from your standpoint in directing these fellowships and residency programs and just kind of what the operations of these programs is all about. Yeah, I'll give it a go because it is, to, I could answer from the perspective of the residency development we're doing right now, or probably more instructive is the development of the fellowship program or the continuation. As I started, because I started with the initial cohort of students in approximately 2005, that was at a time when fellowships were accredited under AOMS and not through ABTRI uh, uh, or a time of, tra of transitioning. And so when I came to take over, it was my, the logistics were making sure we had a good educational product, making sure that the fellows in training we had 
were getting more, what they expected and ideally more from the program in terms of their professional development, their clinical reasoning development, their hands-on skill development. We had a hybrid program from the start with post uh, professionals across the country, so working in different regulatory environments. And so the logistics became complicated and continue to be because we have 50 independent states. We have different ways of looking at our profession from the state level. And each of these post-professional students brought that to the table. And it became very readily, very apparent quickly that we needed to embrace and also work on the advocacy side for our profession, for our fellowship programs, where we saw barriers and challenges we needed to try to work to bring them down so we could be, have a bigger social um, impact to meet the societal needs for our profession. And this was this became part of the fellowship program. Being a chapter president, working at the house, it sort of was incumbent upon us to pick up where we saw problems for the profession and what opportunities as well. The residency story is much simpler um, as it could be because that was after a decade of fellowship training looking to develop a residency program and already having a lot of that structure in place but now being confronted with some policy challenges. Joe, uh, what... Similar, different? Yeah, I think it's a, um, a little different from my perspective in coming into it in 2009, 2010, when residency pro programs were credentialed. Um, and then as the evolution of development of residency and fellowship programs came about, we, we switched through the Abtree model, which was from credentialing to now accreditation. And so as the accreditation system got in place, uh, there was lots of challenges programs were facing as we were forced to transition to these new um, policies that were and standards that were in place. Um, and, and it's easier to start, um, I think, with a program with existing standards versus a program that's had to transition into the third or fourth evolution of standards and transitioning programs from one standard to another standard for accreditation takes time, effort, and energy to do that efficiently. Um, and so I think if you're developing a residency program now, I, there's fewer standards. It's less cumbersome to do if you were developing a residency program three or four years ago because there's been a shift. And part of that shift was the external consultant coming in and advising uh, Abtree regarding their new quality standards. With that being said, though, um, we've, we've come into so many changes so fast and not a good thought on the unintended consequences of all the new policies and changes. And I think that's where we are in this chiasm right now, the unintended consequences of all of these changes and the number of changes that happened in such a short time. Yeah, so to piggyback on that just briefly, like... From a logistical challenge perspective, for the last 10, 12 cohorts in our program, I've had to explain to them as best I can that in fellowship training, they're under multiple different standards and multiple different expectations from regulatory bodies that do not all play together in the sandbox, that have actual different, that have competing standards and also standards that change over the timeline of individuals in a program. And that has been a huge energy commitment. It has been very difficult to navigate around that and to 
focus on the educational product versus just understanding and meeting the next regulatory requirement. And so that creates frustration and it's created a approximately five-year process of trying to work out what really, where are the goalposts? And sometimes where's the field to put the goalposts on? And that, that's what's kept this at the forefront uh, of our discussions versus what we ideally would be getting the best possible post-professional product in education and refining how we educate. What we've been doing is refining how we regulate. And I don't think that's a good way to focus our energy. I think you make a good point about um, playing nice in the sandbox. I think that that's something that I've heard come up many, many times within our profession. And I'm interested, you know, with all of these competing interests and all these policy and standards that you have to make, do, what is it like to operate a residency or a fellowship from a financial aspect? Is it something that is profitable? Do programs break even? Do they operate at a loss? What are your thoughts on that? Boy. Uh, so that, that is a challenge, and it's a moving target. So I'm in a university program, and so we're a non-for-profit university, and so we try to develop a zero-based budget, meaning we don't gain money, we don't lose money, but we try to stay in a neutral financial environment. The problem has become the administrative burden of all of the changes and how they have been pushed out to us. So instead of being able to be in the classroom more, I'm in the classroom less because I'm trying to answer um, new standards, new policies, new procedures, all in on top of my, my normal work hours. And I think that's, that's the, the biggest issue for all of us is that I'm uh, in the Department of Physical Therapy. My salary and benefits are paid by the Department of Physical Therapy. And the purpose of this model was so we could keep the cost or the fees to the residents at a minimum. And as we've become more burdensome with the paperwork, we've had to increase our fees. So our program's gone from $8,500 to $10,000 for a residency program. And for the fellowship, it's even more than that. So I think even though the House of Delegates has passed positions about student debt and coming up with, with positions about student debt, we've shifted now costs to the residents. And so that, that is, for me, a frustration that in order to meet the demands, increased demands of policies and procedures and accreditation, I have to shift the cost to the residents because somebody above me is asking me, how are we going to pay for this? That seems to be a really common theme just in general with, edu with education, uh, this cost-shifting model that people talk about, e econ economists talk about um, all the time. And uh, it, it almost sounds like being a clinician. You know, they talk about how healthcare is getting expensive because of all this administrative burden on clinicians. Do you think that those two are related, the administrative burden in healthcare as well as the administrative burden in education? Or do you think that they're different? I think they're similar. There's different challenges. Um, I, I think the average clinician's perception that is that if you're in academia, you don't have to worry about unit production and units. And it, our units are just tracked in a different way. How many classes we're teaching, how, what, we're, what we're doing for service and uh, scholarship. So our, we have unit production as the clinicians do. They're just measured differently. I, I think that you hit the nail on the head. Reimbursement is not going up. It's going down. The number of patients that uh, clinicians are seeing on a daily basis is rising. 
And residency and fellowship programs just make clinicians more efficient and effective at what they do and improve their patient outcomes. They're voluntary positions. Nobody's making anybody do this. Clinicians do this because they are motivated, and it's going to get them the last mile of their education faster so they can provide a better service. So anything we can do to decrease the regulatory burden that we create, the better we're off we're going to be because we can't do much with the regulatory burdens that are put on us by Medicare and payers. But when it's our own organization, pushing these burdensome requirements on us, that's the problem. And we need to be more nimble, more transparent, more, uh, more communication, more input, and make the goalpost as wide as we can to provide these high-quality programs. Yeah, I completely agree with you guys. And we'll dive into this a little bit more because on top of the administration burden, there's also, you know, some of the new changes are going to also add to costs as well, especially for fellows and residents. But, you know, to give some context, because I recognize that some people listening may not be aware of some of the changes that have kind of been pushed out um, through Abtree, AOMT, IFOMT, and APTA when it comes to residency fellowship reg regulation and admin. So would you guys mind just kind of briefly sharing some of the changes and some of the big hitters here that, you know, that have caused the most controversy for programs? Sure. Uh, the, let, 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 we'll preface it by stating there's been a lot of changes made through the external audit process of Abtree if they're consultant, through a lot, through a, a stakeholder process that was somewhat implemented, but unfortunately not, not, not optimally from our perspective. There has been a reduction in the number of standards. There has been a streamlining of online reporting. These are positive. The unfortunate factor is there's been, a, there's been a small number of changes that are very significant in their impact right now and in the future. And the feedback and the communication that's been put in place has not been effective in alerting and leading to actual consideration of large impact changes. Uh, the, first, the first large one that was brought up across the board for residencies fellowships was changing the, ment the, 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 uh, the requirements for admission into programs. And that uh, took away the opportunity for individuals to go into fellowship training unless they're passed through board certification or residency training. And that, has, that was to be enacted a year ago, was, was delayed, it has now been delayed again a further year, and is an ongoing debate. Now, on the long term, programs across the board predominantly saw that that was feasible in the long term, in a five to ten year window. But in the very short term, to enact on a six month turnaround, a 90% reduction in the potential candidate pool for programs and access to uh, fellowship training for individuals, uh, was seen as a very significant change without the data to support it being done. There was no real rationale presented beyond trying to control the path of education for clinicians. So that is an ongoing concern, and it's it, where it really becomes difficult to even have a conversation is that the mentors, the individuals tasked to give the education, have less, less qualifications than the students being admitted to the programs on paper. So this is a bureaucratic structure we've created that tends to underserve our own end goals. It tends to make it harder to have people come into programs. It's leading to an attrition on the number of people who can apply. And it's not agreed to by a significant majority of programs. 
And the programs are the ones who've been in the trenches, who've lived it, who've done it, who've provided that mentoring, that education and structure. And so they're probably the most informed people to speak to the reality of what needs to happen. And their voice has not been fully heard. The other main, the, the, and currently now we have the, the upcoming implementation, what well, happened a couple of weeks ago, of new rules with regards to what a site is and site visits. And we are moving into a new era where for a resident, any location that they practice in is now considered a site that needs to be assessed and visited. If it's, if it's, if it's added as the third or, or subsequent site in a calendar year, this uh, is very likely a financial demand upon programs that they cannot tolerate if they're of any size. The scalability challenge is, is significant. The, a, a program such as ours would have potentially 18 site visits in a given year just based upon natural growth. So, and the cost of that is not going to be borne by the programs because we have a net neutral standing. It is going to have to be absorbed by the resident training. We are looking at that. And so we have significant concern that the enactment of small changes in paper have huge changes with regards to how the viability and functioning of a program. And so, and this would also create a significant delay in people being able to be mentored. So we don't have data to support this. We don't have a, we have not had demonstrated to us a prescient need for this significant change. And when we bring up the factual statement that not a CAPTI has no similar standard, that they do not visit any clinical education site for individuals who are looking to eventually be licensed to practice, that we need to know why, and it needs to be a valid and demonstrable reason why we need to make this significant change that will impact programs so significantly i've used that word too many times maybe you can edit it okay is that significant I'll, I'll, yeah i'll see it for joe <laughs> well and you know and cameron i kind of want to ask one follow-up to that because you know i've heard people that have kind of expressed that opinion on that issue as well regarding the site visits and how it's only conducted where um the clinical care occurs um what has been the discussion, if any, on instead of having that observation be live, just be utilizing through technology to save costs, access, like, in obviously help from that avenue, like, has that come out? Has that come up? And is that a valid option? That has been addressed. That has been brought up for five years as a recommendation. There's ways to leverage technology. We're leveraging technology right now. We leverage technology in education. Why can't we leverage technology in accreditation? Uh, what comes through, unfortunately, is a, um, that we don't have a feedback loop for communication on these ideas. These ideas have been submitted in writing. And also, Brandon, uh, as we understand it now over the for, for latest clarification, it's not just the clinical sites where mentoring occurs that will be looked at for site visits. It's also the clinic where the individual just practices. So, so if you enter a residency and you're not currently part of an established relationship where someone's had residency training before, you are now going to be more burdened than the individual who's fortunate enough to have a colleague who's already gone for a residency. How does this help us expand the footprint of our post-professional training? I see it as, unfortunately, excluding uh, those who are not currently engaged in post-professional training, excluding those who do not have the university uh, relationship, who don't, 
who maybe are in rural communities, maybe communities who've had less access to quality education previously. So we, how does this help us in the long run to expand our input and, and, and meet our goal to help society? I think it does the opposite. And as Joe said, I think the word is bureaucracy. We're creating our own bureaucracy. Woe unto us if we create our own bureaucracies that hurt us. Yeah, we can't, we have federal bureaucracies that we have very small voices in, but this is our own that we have created. I understand we need to keep it at arm's length, but sometimes you get it a little wrong and you've got to just sort of step back and say, all right, we need to make a change. And we ourselves are the audience. So let's listen. Um, not, not require programs to do the investigation themselves to understand what the impact would be and learn from our peers, learn from the American College Graduate Medi Medical Education for 75 years have done this and have set up feedback loops so an individual program can have an immediate hearing and create a change when a policy has been identified that has an impact well beyond what was expected. It should, we need to be ha able to be reactive in a positive way and not be defensive in that we want to like simply keep moving forward and have a decision made be set. No, sometimes we get it a little bit wrong and we need to know when that happens and act. So on the, on the uh, multi-site issue, so I'm going to speak from the residency perspective, especially my orthopedic program. So we're, we're approved for, we're re-accredited in 2015 for 10 years. And so we're approved to have 12 residency spots. So that's our accreditation document. That's how many we, that is our target. Through the years, we've fluctuated between three, 10, 12, eight. This year we have three. So my question when this policy came out uh, to Abtree was, okay, I am approved for 12 spots. I have 22 applicants in the queue for the 12 spots. However, I have lost a lot of my clinics due to hospital takeovers, corporate practice takeovers, um, physician-owned practices popping up all throughout the metro Atlanta area. And so my role as the director of post-professional education is to ensure I have clinical sites for 12 residents. So coming for this 2019-20 cohort, I only have three of my current clinics saying, yes, I will take a resident. So the expectation for my department chair, my dean, is that I'm hitting the streets and going to clinics and marketing the value of the residency program. But now I am going to be in a roadblock because if I add more than two clinical sites, so if I add, let's say I want to get to my number eight, so if I add five new clinical sites, I am going to have to have a, a approval, be a site visit in order for this to happen. So how does that help me sustain my high quality residency program? I've graduated over 55 orthopedic residents, 10 uh, neuro residents, three cardiovascular pulmonary residents. I've doubled the number of CCSs in the state of Georgia. We're on a mission here to change grassroots practice. And the more burdensome requirements you place on me, the less influence I'm going to have on grassroots practice. And the less graduates of DPT programs are going to be able to participate in residency programs. My feeling is I am the director of the programs. I visit the sites. I vet the clinicians. I vet the clinical sites. 
not an individual sitting in Alexandria, Virginia, who's going to send an individual out to my clinic to view a mentoring program for an hour and a half, let the show begin, you have a quality program. Anybody can put on a show for an hour and a half. That is not going to ensure quality. What ensures quality is my visits to the clinic, my continuous observations of the residency, the resident in training, not somebody from an accrediting agency saying, yes, you have treatment tables. Yes, you have qualified clinicians. I saw it for an hour. You're good to go. That's just inappropriate. As a director of post-professional education, that's my responsibility. And if I'm not doing my job, my chair is going to hold me accountable on my performance reviews. So I think we just have a disconnect in, in who's responsible for what. It certainly appears that way. And, you know, I'm curious, guys, just because I know at um, House of Delegates recently, there was a big move in which AHOMT had endorsed Aptree. Um, You know, given everything that's been talked about of late and some of these things going on, I'm just curious kind of about, because I know a lot of people are curious about that as well, of what that was about and what that was trying to accomplish. Well, I think, I think what, we're, what the organizations have done is come together for a common purpose to train advanced practicing clinicians. I think what we're seeing now are the unintended consequences of policy and standards from a small group of people without external stakeholders being consulted or being pulled in as focus groups to say, hey, what if we made this restriction on your multi-site program? Hey, Joe, what if we made it that you had to have a site visit? How would that affect your program? Have you been able to sustain the same clinics for the past 10 years? Have you been able to broaden your reach of residency programs? And the answer is no, no, no. Because people really at the grassroots level on the day-to-day practice do not see the value of residency training yet. And that's because we're in our infancy. And in order to get value, we have to increase our breadth. More people involved, more people engaging, more people doing what uh, is considered to be advanced clinical practice or best practice initiatives. So we can start to do on the other end, start to implement our clinical practice guidelines. And the only way we're going to do that is if we increase the, the breadth of residency access, not restricting it. It's a very complex question, like, and Joe and I have been in the house together for quite a while addressing these issues. Like with RC9 a few years ago, it was about getting the voice initially heard and there was a problem. And we, we received a partial answer, enough to give us confidence that perhaps going forward, um, it was better to play in the sandbox altogether, but at least, uh, but to make it known that it wasn't 100% right. And maybe what maybe hadn't hit 50% but we wanted to keep it going together forward. We're better together, so, as, as President Dunn put in her address to the House last year. We are better together. We just need to find a way to be there. In the last House, the understanding was changes will be made to the process within Abtree to include things such as a standards committee, which would la- allow individuals who are more tied to the front end, to the uh, provision of the education, to mentoring, to have a voice. Um, but what is what ha- and so it was also there's also ongoing conversations between these bodies about by supporting each other we also expect to be heard going forward and we know there's going to need to still be conversations about these disparate standards between other groups unfortunately uh the interpretation 
and the release of new policies and procedures happened after the House. We first became aware in detail in, in the August timeframe about the considerations of the site visits. It wasn't until late this year, late last year, that we start, it, it started to get clarified for us that this really meant every single site a residence in and every single new site. That was that so the and the standards committee that has not really been given an authority to act. They will be reviewing concerns and reporting back to the board on a delayed time frame. So we need to be nimble and agile. We need to be able to respond. We're setting up a process that is not nimble, is not agile, and when changes are made, they're requiring programs to respond rapidly, but not it, but not the board or not the, those writing the policies. They're not looking to respond in an agile manner. They're looking to respond on a five-year turnaround. And so we also appreciate that there is a very large investment into our post-professional bodies by our national APTA leadership. There's a tremendous amount of time and effort put in there. It's, it's at times when you're managing a patient, one of your treatments you give does not give the response that you, that you intended. So you look again at the whole picture and you try something a little different. You don't ask the patient to leave. You don't consider everything you did wrong. So we just need to, we're looking to try and enable us to continue to learn from the process, to be able to share the educational goals, but to bring it back around to what Joe talked about, he, he didn't use this word, but I'll put it this way. What we need to do is trust each other. We need to trust those who are in the front line that they really do know what they're doing. We, are, we have graduated nearly 150 fellows, and I ask them at the end every time, did you get what you received? Did, you, did this program meet your needs? That's the answer that I value, not the boxes we check, check for accreditation. That's a front-end promise, in essence, to the student. They'll probably get what they need. But we have to, face, to have that face-to-face conversation. Did you receive what you needed to advance yourself? Was this worth your time? That tells the story going forward. And that's becoming harder to do the more regulatory demands we need to meet. And I have a very difficult time telling a new resident or a new fellow in training, they have to bear the burden of these site visits. They need to produce more funds and not be able to tell them why. That's the big one. Is so, the squeeze? We don't think so. So just to give our listeners maybe some context, for those of you that aren't familiar with the House of Delegates for the American Physical Therapy, the association it's the policy making body that decides on basically how we're going to run our organization and what we're going to prioritize in the coming years and so that's what that's what Dr. McDonald and Dr. Donnelly are talking about you know you had mentioned that um, you had mentioned Dr. McDonald that it's hard to tell people why they need to go through this what what do you think the reasons are behind these changing these changes that these accrediting bodies have made based on your experience and your perspective? Well, I always like to start from the perspective that nearly everyone's intent is positive, is good. They're trying to do the right thing. Our, 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 our accrediting body, ABTRI, is not yet itself accredited. It needs to establish a stance of uh, so that they themselves can achieve accreditation. I believe there's roles that are to allow students to defer loans or have uh, loan allowance in residency and fellowship training that the structures need to be put in place so that uh, that can be done. I think that's an APTA national goal. I think, I think these are good goals. 
So I feel like the intent is to also address where problems have occurred with programs with regards to lack of oversight as is perceived by, the, by these regulatory and accrediting bodies. I'm not aware of the complaints brought forth, but I'm sure that they'll have happened. So I feel the intent is to be positive. Uh, it's really just the, when, when issues have been identified that that has not been listened to. The opportunity to revise and refine has not been embraced. It's more been a one-way communication at times. Stakeholder processes that were set up were not held to. Meetings that were going to be held virtually were not completed. Uh, feedback that was given by multiple programs was, I believe, condensed into a single point of feedback or set aside. We're not privy to the conversations because they haven't been very transparent. We've had limited points of communication. And so our concern is when that happens is it's almost like a game of telephone and you don't really end up with where you want to be. Like the more open, more open, transparent communications is what we've called for. Here's our input. What's your input? Let's work this out. But it hasn't really functioned in that way. So uh, we want to focus elsewhere. We want to focus on the quality education, embracing evidence-based practice, getting mentoring as good as it possibly can be. We don't want to focus on trying to perfect the regulatory requirements to control the outcome for the individual because we don't know what the outcome is sometimes. There's art in what we do still, and we need to be brave enough to allow that to happen and not feel like we have to control it all. And, and I, would, I would agree with you, Cameron, and, and I'll let you use the word trust because I, I do think that is, is an issue that it's, it's, there's almost like a, a distrust of program directors that we're going to do the right thing about um, looking at our programs. But I, but I think the House of Delegates has made some significant uh, moves. Uh, like Cameron said, RC9, a couple years ago, we passed that kind of, we ended up withdrawing it, but it got the message clear, it got the conversation going. Um, and then last year, the board of directors brought back that uh, to the house, recognizing Abtree as the accrediting agency for post-professional programs in physical therapy. Um, but what happened was the lack of transparency and communication is the issue for me and the unintended consequences of changes. And, and you, you have to try to avoid unintended consequences through communication and transparency as much as you can. But when program directors point out an unintended consequence or several unintended consequences, I would think that leaders would take a pause and say, wait a minute, maybe the, there are unintended consequences and maybe we need to um, reconsider this or maybe we need to get a cadre of pro program directors together and have a focus group and ask them, what do you think the impact on your program is gonna be? Or what do you think the impact on future growth and sustainability is gonna be? Um, and one of the, the mistakes that I think uh, were made, um, and being on the entry level side of accreditation in CAPTI and being very familiar with CAPTI and writing an application for candidacy, writing an initial accreditation document with my colleagues and writing a reaccreditation document, I'm very familiar with accreditation requirements and the good they do for program development and sustainability. The issue is when we got the new quality standards to review um, and give feedback, we received them one at a time or a section at a time without the current standards. So we were just commenting on new standards. Then after the standards were implemented, we got a crosswalk 
which identified, here's the old standards, here's the new standards, but this is what we're doing. You don't get to give us feedback on that. But one of the things that was missing that we thought was going to be there was the IFOMP requirements for orthopedic manual physical therapy fellowships because they've always been there. And all of a sudden, in the new standards for fellowship, they disappeared. And leadership from AMP, leadership from programs uh, that had manual therapy fellowships said, hey, wait a minute, these standards are missing. Well, we're not putting them in. And so there's been no room for negotiation. And the, the argument keeps coming back. You can only have one fellowship standard. <coughs> Industry standards say this. Well, let me tell you, physical therapists are the only individuals that can provide physical therapy. We are the industry we set the standards. And to compare us to anybody else is ridiculous. Even the graduate medical education, I don't want us to be compared to physicians. We are something much different. We offer a different product. We offer different services. We need to be developing our own thing. And if you look at other organizations, they're actually looking at what we've done at Aptree. There's other rehab professionals, if you say, that are looking at Aptree and saying, we're not doing that. That's ridiculous. So physical therapists will always put, it, put ourselves in the corner. We don't have to wait for any other profession to do it because we do a great job ourselves. Beautifully said, Joe, and I, and I appreciate. My bringing up the American College Graduate Medical Education was only to talk to a body that's learned to listen to itself in terms of how to set its standards. But when I speak to students, why is a physical therapist given a license? It's not a privilege, it's a duty. It is an expectation of acting autonomously. We, if we're going to be autonomous in our practice, why, can, um, why should we not be autonomous in how we establish what our standards are with regards to education? That is a requirement upon ourselves. We are, like, the industry standard argument has been a real frustration for the last five years. The one, at, one area we've looked is to CAPTI because it was, it's really at, within our industry, but we need to learn from our own process and not assume that someone else has got it right, we need to copy them. Because obviously we can do a little better and we need to enable those who have done this the most for the longest to give input because that's where the value lies. The AOMS has been on the front end of this because more than 25 years of post-professional fellowship training meeting international standards. When we saw the, in essence, redlining out of all the IFOMP standards, watering us back down to a single standard, again, we can understand that maybe they want to keep it simpler, but that it creates a two-tiered fellowship accreditation standard. Now, that has not, we have not had a new program form yet that meets only the new ABTRI standards. All current programs meet the IFOMP standards. But someone could undercut the quality and value of fellowship OMPT training by developing a program that meets the accreditation standards but does not meet AOMS and IFOMS standards. That is not to say that would be their intent, but it's going to be an unintended consequence. And consider the devaluation of that credential. If we, dev if we made it so that you could obtain a DPT with half the clinical education, uh, in the future, when, and those, when those individuals graduate, how would that affect the marketplace or the professional stance of everyone else who went through a much longer process? I don't think we can do that to ourselves, but we are in the fellowship realm. 
Access to healthcare is one of the largest issues facing both providers and patients, as millions of people worldwide lack timely and affordable access to healthcare. Anywhere Healthcare, a telehealth platform, is a simple, low-cost option for providers and patients that eliminates the barriers to access to all kinds of healthcare. To find out more, check out anywhere.healthcare, which is available on our show notes. And if you use the code HET in all caps when you email to sign up, you'll save 25% off the total cost. Thank you for attending class today, and we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, healthcareeducationtransformationpodcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.